Pastor Kenny, do you believe that the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or in the seat of mockers, do you believe that that, that man is blessed because Psalm 1 says so? I would say, well, yeah, well, what's your point? And I, so Catholic Kenny would say, well, that's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. I, I, I'm saying it's still true. Like Psalm 1 is still true. Psalm 119 is still true that the yes. law of the Lord does all these things and that God still calls me to obey him. And like that hasn't changed because we're all Christians now. Well, hello and welcome to another Blink and You'll Miss It episode of On the Journey. Actually, take about an hour-long nap and you'll miss it is, is really probably a little bit more accurate. Yeah. Uh, but it is On the Journey. Uh, I'm Matt Swain, Director of Outreach for the Coming Home Network, along with my colleagues Ken Hensley and Kenny Burchard. We were various forms of Protestants, and uh, we've explained that in various other episodes. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're glad that you're here. The Coming Home Network is a whole group of people who come from all kinds of different backgrounds who became Catholic. And if you want to find out more about what we're about as an organization, come to chnetwork.org. You can also join an online community full of people who are either actively on the journey or who have made this journey into the desert, as it were, and come out the other side of the Red Sea uh, and see what their experience is like and uh, ask them all kinds of questions. That's community.chnetwork.org. And this is all made possible because of the generous support of some people who want to make these episodes keep going for some inexplicable reason. And if you want to join their uh, donor base, uh, right now during this series of episodes, uh, we've made available Marcus Grody's book, What Must I Do to Be Saved?, which is following the same topic that we're following here, which is salvation, holiness, conversion as a process, uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, go to chnetwork.org slash compass, and if you enter OTJ3141, when you make your gift, we'll send you a book. Again, chnetwork.org slash compass, and then enter the code OTJ3141. Gentlemen, how are you? Great. Good. Really I'm glad to be here. Glad to be recording. Very concerned Great. about your salvation and stuff. <laughs> no, that's what's sick. Great, good, great and good. Yes. And, uh, and well, stuff like that. And stuff. So while the while the pop culture references are flying, we might as well go back to the ultimate pop culture reference library, which is God's holy word, quoted in almost every movie and football commentary of all time. And mm -hmm. Ken Hensley, catch us up to where we are today. <laughs> okay. Well, the the uh, title of our series is "Turning from Idols to Serving to Serve the Living God," based on um, something that Saint Paul wrote in First Thessalonians chapter one. Verse 9, uh, when he said that the Thessalonian believers had, this is how he described their conversion, they had turned from idols to serve the living God. And what we're talking about in this series is the doctrine, not, well, the doctrine of sanctification. That is, how are we actually changed from the inside and made more like Christ? And many may say, some of you may say immediately, only God can change us from the inside. What are you talking about? There's nothing we can do. And I want to begin by saying that there is truth in this. Um, this is the way God has set up the entire universe. 
unless God sends the rain, I've used this analogy before, unless he sends the rain and the sunshine, the farmer is going is not going to have a crop. On the other hand, unless the farmer tills the field and plants a seed and cares for it, God can send as much rain and sunshine as he likes, and there will again be no crop. The way things are in the natural order is the way things are in the spiritual order. Only God can change us from the inside. I want to insist on that and, uh, you know, emphasize it, uh, highlight it, underline it. Only God can change us from the inside. But God changes us as we cooperate with his grace and we do what he's given us to do. Uh, it's like St. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where he commands the Philippian believers, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Doesn't sound like Paul thinks there's nothing <laughs> that we can do. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But then, for God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And really, this kind of thing is taught throughout the New Testament. And so, in Catholic teaching, on sanctification, cooperation with grace, with God's grace, is a key concept. Concept. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, I was thinking here, disagree? Ken. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking about how the the church insists on maintaining the tension be between things sometimes, and you know, on one hand, Pelagianism, which kind of you know, in shorthand, says, "Well, we can we can do things without God." Basically, like I, I can believe in God without God. And the church says, no, you can't. You need, you need God's grace. But the other imbalance is <clears throat> no matter what, you know, no matter what I do, God does it all. And the church says no to that as well. And instead says it is cooperation with the grace of God. That's, that's where the, the church lands. And, um, and of course, you've been landing there all, all through this series. So. Yeah, and you made some great comments, I think, in our last episode, it might have been on monergism and, and synergism, you know. Mm -hmm. Is God doing the whole thing, or does he involve us? And the Catholic position mm -hmm. is to say, God involves us, all right? I won't right. go any further, right. further into that. Okay, now, guys, in this series, we've been using the story of the exodus of the old covenant Israel from bondage in Egypt. We've been using this as a type um, or as events pro providing for us a pattern for how the new covenant Israel, the church, is delivered from bondage, not to the Egyptians, but bondage to sin, bondage to the idols that we have come to serve, back to the title of the series again. So far, we've learned the following. First of all, deliverance begins with prayer. It was when the children of Israel began to cry out in their slavery that God, lo and behold, appears to Moses in the burning bush, and he says, and I'm quoting now from Exodus chapter 3, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. And it's the same for you and I. Deliverance from sin, deliverance from unhealthy attachments, from addictions, from the idols that we may have come to serve in our lives. It begins with prayer, and that's not just one time. It begins like every moment, every hour, every day, it begins with prayer. If we're not crying out to God, then we're not ready to be delivered is sort of the bottom line on that. Okay, step two, we've learned that in order to be saved, we must trust God and do what God tells us to do. There must be trusting 
obedience. For the Israelites, it was the Passover. Slaughter the lamb, spread the blood, eat the lamb, and walk out of Egypt. They had to trust God, and they had to do. And under this point, I'm reminded again of um, AA, you know, in um, Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, whether it's drug addiction, you know, alcohol addiction, sex addiction, whatever. They, they always say that you have to trust in God and you have to stop. You know, no one ever says in AA, okay, trust in God and just keep drinking. And then hope that over time God stops you from drinking. You have to stop. Even if you fail within three days or one day or a week and you have to start again, you have to stop. So again, step two, step one is prayer. Step two in our lives is that we have to trust God and do what God is commanding us to do. We have to walk out of Egypt. Step three is this. We've learned that we must become clear on the fact that in our baptism, the power was given and sin, the power of sin at some deep fundamental level was broken in our lives. Paul says that we are able in our baptism, what God does to us, we are able to walk in newness of life, that we've been set free. And we see this in the Israelite story again, the crossing of the Red Sea was that event that marked the end really formally of the Israelites' lives as slaves to the Egyptians and the beginning of their lives as free men and women under God. And for us, well, it's the same way. Of course, the crossing of the Red Sea was the type. The fulfillment in the new covenant is our baptism into Christ, where Paul tells us in no uncertain terms in Romans chapter 6 that in our baptism, we died with Christ and we were raised with him to newness of life. And if you take that to mean, yeah, but that's just abstract, it's theological. No, he says we've been raised to newness of life in such a way that we no longer have to serve sin. That's step three that we've covered. Any comment before I go on to step four? Okay. Step four. Now, these are past episodes, but I want to run them all together for us. We need to cry out to God in prayer. This is how we are changed. This is how sanctification occurs. We need to be crying out to God in prayer. We need to be trusting God and doing what God is calling us to do. We need to keep in mind clearly that in our baptism, a powerful work was done by the Holy Spirit in regeneration, the gift of the Spirit. And we have the ability now to walk in newness of life. So we cannot really say fundamentally, no, it's impossible. I cannot break with this idol, this attraction, whatever. And then the fourth step was this. In our last episode, we learned that we must follow the Holy Spirit who is leading us into the desert purposely to be tested, tried, to grow, to be changed in the process. The Israelites crossed the Red Sea. They couldn't take the desert more than a few days, and they're begging Moses to lead them back into Egypt. Uh, well, we do the same thing. We do it quite often. We make up our minds to make some change in our lives, to separate ourselves from something that we know is not good and, or, or that we know is flat-out sinful. Uh, we last three or four days in the desert, um, experiencing withdrawals from, from our chosen addiction, and uh, we're clamoring to go back to Egypt. The problem is, and I want this to be extremely made in an extremely clear way, the problem for us is this. The path to the promised land is a path that leads through the wilderness. It doesn't go around the wilderness like some forms of Christian theology that basically say Jesus suffered though we don't have to. You know, Jesus died and suffered so that we don't have to. No, it's take up your cross and follow me. The path to the promised land is a path that 
leads directly through the wilderness. It is only as we walk through the wilderness and we experience the breaking of our attachments, we experience the withdrawals that come with that, and we come out the other side. It's only then that we begin to experience the freedom that St. Paul is talking about, the freedom of sanctification. Okay, gentlemen? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would just say, you know, right here, Ken, that um, I know we're going to be unpacking this over the next few minutes, but this shouldn't be shocking. These, These shouldn't be shocking ideas to any Christian when you say, this is how God has been saving his people all along. And Mm -hmm. so in Christ, Mm -hmm. this is how God continues saving his people. Like this isn't a completely alternate universe that we are, are living in as followers of Jesus. God, God continues to, to save and he continues to redeem and he continues to transform his people the way that he has always done so. Yeah, so that when, you know, in constructing this series, in other words, you guys, it's not like I'm just pulling the Exodus out of a hat and saying, oh, let's just use this as some kind of a pattern. No, the way that God saved the old covenant Israel is a type of the fulfillment in new covenant Israel that is us, the church, and how he saves us. Go ahead, Matt. You wanted to say something? I was just going to say, you're not pulling it. Uh, the Exodus out of the hat any more than St. Paul pulls the Exodus out of a hat to talk about this, as we're about to see later on in this episode. Uh, but I just was going to say it's sort of funny that, you know, your your four steps um, that you got to pray, you got to trust God and obey, you've got to believe that you've been set free, uh, you know, baptism is the mechanism we've been talking about that uh, for that, and then we have to actually follow God in the process. Um you know, there's a variation on that that some of us remember called the four spiritual laws, right? And uh, you know, the idea I'm mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna mess these up. But the first one is that God loves you and has a plan for your life. The second one being um, that we're all sinners in need of a savior. That Jesus Christ came to do the work on that, and we got to place our faith in Him uh, if we want to know, you know, what that is. It's essentially kind of the same sort of thing we've done so far. Now we're going to add some 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 meat on the bone here in just a little bit but i just want to put, point that out only because i feel like anybody who was sharing the four spiritual laws in the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. uh was able to do mm-hmm. in a they were trained in some cases to do in two and a half minutes what mm-hmm. we just did in six hours or so so uh, <laughs> just want to make sure that Are everybody you... knows that we're very seriously we're very seriously exploring this topic <laughs> yeah are you saying that i'm too talkative no too loquacious. This is <laughs> too wordy. Okay. I'm saying that I'm saying that two and a half minutes joking. is too fast for this material. Yeah, I'm just joking. It's too fast. Okay. Well, we are going to speed up a bit here because in this episode we're going to address steps five, six, and seven. Three more steps in the process. Okay. And the first one is this. And I'm following the story of Israel. Just following the story of Israel at this point. Here's step five. You and I need to receive with thankful hearts the supernatural food and drink that God has given us for our journey through the wilderness of this life. Okay, the Holy Spirit leads us out into the desert, just like the Holy Spirit led the Lord Jesus out into the desert to be tempted right after his baptism. The Holy Spirit leads us out, but he doesn't just leave us alone. And one of the things that he gives us is supernatural food and drink to sustain us on this journey. And of course, I'm referring to the Eucharist here. But let's begin by going back to the story of the Exodus. Okay, the Israelites following 
pattern, you know, uh, steps one, two, three, and four, they've cried out to God. They've trusted God, step two, and they've obeyed him. They've walked out of Egypt. Three, they've passed through the Red Sea where they were baptized into Moses and where Pharaoh and his armies were destroyed once for all and they were set free. Again, I, I love that type. They were set free in type. We are set free in our baptism in a deep spiritual reality. I think of Ezekiel 36, I will take out your heart of stone when I sprinkle clean water on you. I'll give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my ways. That's baptism. Okay, they've been led by the spirit into the desert to be tested and tried, even as Jesus was. So what happens next? We're just following the story. Exodus chapter 16, beginning at verse one. So they set out from Elam. This is after the um, crossing of the Red Sea. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness and said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out of, into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And here we have the whole story uh, that we're all familiar with of God's gift of the manna, which fell every day for the Israelites to eat. And it kept on falling from the sky, from heaven, uh, for the entire 40 years they were in the wilderness. Okay, but then there's chapter 17 as well, Exodus 17, where we read, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people found fault with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. Okay, this is where, poor Moses, this is where God performs another miracle. He orders Moses to strike a rock with the staff, the same staff he used to separate the waters of the Red Sea. And when he strikes the rock, water gushes out. Okay, now, it's not my intention to go into extreme detail here on the manna and the water, but to say in short, having been led by the Spirit of God into the desert, where the Israelites are going to, in the end, wander for 40 years, being tested, tried, and changed. God provides for his grumbling people supernatural food and drink to sustain them on their journey. You know, it's it's funny because, I mean, I don't know if any of you all read Pilgrim's Progress. I think I have yeah. a very old version of Pilgrim's Progress uh, here, and you have like, Mr. Worldly Wiseman, right? And then there's like, you know, he goes through Vanity Fair and he like, you know, almost drowns in the slough of despond. And, you know, mm -hmm. the protagonist's name is literally Christian. I just want to make sure that people realize that that's not what you're doing when you're referring to the wilderness of sin. Uh, <laughs> when, you're, <laughs> yeah. when you're talking about where the Israelites are languishing, like I brought up my, uh, well, my old NIV Bibles and it's got the map in the back. I just want to make sure that people... You probably can't it's an see. Place. That's an actual yeah. geographical place. The <laughs> desert of sin 
Yeah. Right. So yeah. Ken's not just yeah. like, we all go through these deserts of sin in our lives. I would just want to make sure that you know, there's a literal desert called sin. Yeah. And the word yeah, sin the, doesn't show up in English until long, long after. Just yeah. Sure. Or the slough, the slough of despond. Yeah. I remember slough that. Slough well. of despond. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for making that point, Matt. Yes. We're talking about real events here. Okay. And the point that we want to make then in application is it's the same for us. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, St. Paul draws a straight line from the supernatural food and drink that God provided for his people in the wilderness and the Eucharist that he has given us as food and drink for our journey. And uh, this is what he says. I'll explain what I mean by that, by saying that he draws a straight line between the two. I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses and the cloud and the sea and all ate the same supernatural food and drink and all drank the same supernatural drink. Okay, he's referring back to these events that we've just looked at, okay? The Israelites going through the Red Sea, being baptized into Moses. And Paul says, I want you to know that they were all, they were all baptized into Moses and they all ate the same supernatural food and drank the same supernatural drink. For they drank from the supernatural rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things are warnings for us. Okay, Paul brings up this story, the, the story of what happened to the Israelites in order to communicate a message to his readers. And when you think about it, the implied message, because he doesn't state it directly, explicitly, the implied message of Paul goes something like this. He's basically saying, you Corinthians, I want to remind you of what happened to the to our fathers in the desert there, because you Corinthians, you may have been baptized into Jesus Christ as they were baptized into Moses. You may have your own supernatural food and drink as they did. But unless you persevere in faith and obedience, you will not make it to the promised land. That's his implied message is as clear as day. And what could he possibly mean by saying, you have your own supernatural food and drink, except a, a reference to the Eucharist? So I just want to say that, you know, how much clearer can it be is something that I think we can only all say now, because I don't know about you, like when Paul says you know, I, I read this passage a, a hundred times, uh, you know, I think yeah. I might even Bible quizzed on this book one year as a Nazarene. And the message, whenever I heard this talked about was like, listen, man, God was with them and God's with you. Right. Um, but the real message is look at all the ways that people didn't trust God in the Old Testament. Those stories are, um, <clears throat> they're morality tales in some ways as to what happens when you don't follow God. I would have had, I would have like completely skipped past Paul. What do you mean supernatural drink? You know, like, of course they did. They had like water from the rock and manna or whatever. <laughs> like I read Exodus. I know what you're talking about. I would have never said, I would never thought in my mind that Paul was saying, you also have supernatural mm -hmm. food and drink. Like I would have never have ever noticed that part. And now I, it just leaps off the page because like I can completely See, if Paul's talking from a sacramental worldview where he's talking about, he's seeing yeah. Eucharist and he's seeing baptism, like, it's clear to me, and it's clear to his audience, no doubt, that that's exactly what he's talking about. In exactly. fact, when you assume, I, go ahead, Kenny, go ahead. 
And I, I would add, like, I want to share a Catholic word right here. <laughs> Continuity. And, and that, that's a big mm-hmm. theme really in everything that you've been sharing, Ken, and that that is, and we've said it already, there's continuity between how God has been working with people all through salvation history to how he's working with people mm-hmm. now in Jesus. And this little word that shows up twice in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is really helpful. It first shows up in uh, verse 6. Now these things are all warnings. And then that word shows up again in verse 11. Now these things happen to them as a warning. And we said before that um, that that Greek word, warning, is actually the word type, tupas, uh, some derivative of that of that word in the original language, that these are types. These Old Testament stories are, um, they typify, if you will, mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. God works in the lives of his people. So Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, so it shouldn't surprise us that this is exactly how he's at work in us. He gave them supernatural food. Right. That typifies what he gives us in Jesus, supernatural food. I think the big question, though, is, okay, well, how does that relate to sanctification or how God makes us holy? Well, the same text, 1 Corinthians 10, says that the bread that we eat and the cup that we drink are a koinonia or a sharing in the body and the blood of Jesus. In other words, and those are the sanctifying elements of the Christian life. The the body yes. of Jesus, the, the the crucified body, the poured out blood of Jesus. What happens to Jesus on the cross accrues mm-hmm. to us, becomes powerfully present in us when we participate at the Eucharistic table. It's it's part of why um, we are mm-hmm. obligated to go to Mass as 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 Catholics because we're obligated to walk in holiness, and this is one of the ways that we do that. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, that's excellent and true. And I, I'm thinking about something that Matt said a moment ago about it, this message leaping off the page now on, in 1 Corinthians that he hadn't seen before. Think, think about it the other way around. If, if Paul is not intending to have his readers think about their baptism into Jesus Christ and the Eucharist, then why would he have brought up the baptism of, of the Israelites and their supernatural food? Because then his message would be something like this. Hey, our fathers were in the wilderness. They were baptized into Moses. They had supernatural food and drink, and yet they fail. Now, you guys who don't have supernatural <laughs> food and drink, you know, beware, uh, yeah. because you may fa- fall too. You know, they'd be like, well, thanks a lot. So you mean they had something we don't even have? You know, Paul's implied message is very clearly to say to them, do not rely upon the fact that you've been baptized into Jesus. Don't rely upon the fact that you have your own supernatural food and drink. If you don't follow, if you don't persevere like the Israelites of old, you won't make it. And so that's very good, Kenny, because this is the Eucharist. The Eucharist is our manna from heaven is what I'm saying here. Okay. Mm-hmm. It is. The well, Eucharist the- is the Eucharist is our water from the rock. Go ahead, Matt. You're, you're well, trying to say I was something. just going to say, while we're in leaping off the page mode, uh, you know, again, it doesn't leap off the page if you're like us who have what Kenny referred to uh, several episodes back as ecclesial amnesia. If you just pick it up and you're just like a, a guy who found the Gideon in the drawer, you're not going to see these things. But if you see it, the whole thing starts to like round out because in 1 Corinthians 10, at the beginning, there's the 
the warning about the people with supernatural food and drink not doing the right thing. And immediately that right. Paul talks about. All right. Now, speaking of food and drink, there's this thing where some of y'all are eating stuff that's been sacrificed in other places. Right. Yeah. This is where the meat sacrifice to idols conversation comes up. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, right after that, uh, he talks about some things that need to go on in worship. And it's immediately one chapter later in chapter 11 where he says this thing that confused so many of us, which is, all right, now here's what happens if you eat and drink unworthily of this yeah. supernatural food and supernatural drink that I've been talking about for the whole previous chapter. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. Like suddenly yeah. all the pieces come together. You know, yes. But again, if you're yes. just picking it up, those seem like all separate topics, unless you have like that sort of the 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 mind of the church kind of guiding you through that story. So, so this is one spot finally where what we're saying about sanctification does apply within Catholic theology in a way that it would not have applied in my life as a Baptist because I didn't believe that we had been given supernatural food and drink, but. But from a Catholic perspective, the Eucharist is the new covenant fulfillment of the manna and the water that sprung from the rock, which were types, which were, which was typology. Yeah. The Eucharist is our supernatural food and drink that God has given to sustain us on our journey through the wilderness of this world. The Israelites journeyed through the desert. We journey through another kind of desert, spiritual desert type fulfillment. And because of that, you guys, this hit me so much when I began to read the early church fathers as something new. But now I say, no wonder that you read St. Ignatius, Bishop of the Church in Antioch, and the letter that he writes to the church in Smyrna, and very early, we're talking about 107, 110 AD, somewhere around then, in which he refers to the Eucharist as, and I'm quoting, the medicine of immortality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the medicine, you know, referring to the Eucharist in a way that I, it would never have even crossed my mind to refer to it. He sees the Eucharist as doing something. Uh, we yes. receive it and we are changed uh, to the point to where he's willing to call it the medicine of immortality. And then one yeah. more quotation from the early fathers, Justin Martyr, then just a few decades later in his first apology. This is what he says of the Holy Eucharist, for not as common bread or common drink do we receive these, but since Jesus Christ our Savior was made incarnate by the Word of God and had both flesh and blood for our salvation. Notice he's made incarnate by the Word of God. So too, as we have been taught, the food that has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer set down by him, this is my body, this is my blood, and by the change of which our blood and flesh is nurtured or nourished is both the flesh and blood of that incarnated Jesus. Yeah. Early church mm-hmm. fathers describing the Eucharist as the medicine of immortality or as supernatural food that we receive and by which we are changed. This is something that never crossed my mind before I became Catholic. And and I would a hundred percent agree. I'm like I'm like coming out of my chair on this one, Ken, because I because I think you know I remember when I was Pastor Kenny and we had communion once a month because we didn't want it to become a dead ritual, uh, or some churches that had it once a quarter and others once a year. I think yeah. everything you've shared here in connecting the Eucharist to part of the way or integral to the way in which God makes us His holy people. 
um, and that he's that this is an ongoing process. It it would be impossible for me now to join myself or attach myself to any form of Christianity that that um, didn't celebrate the Eucharist regularly. Like in the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. it's every single day you can you can go and mm-hmm. receive the Eucharist three hundred sixty five days a year. But every time we gather as a people, as a as a worshiping mm-hmm. people, the Eucharist is at the center of that, and that's because it is a participation in the life-giving body and blood of Jesus, which really does change us. And so I thought, talk to my pre-Catholic self and say, if that's really true, like, why do you wait so long between <laughs> you know, between celebrating communion? So for what it's worth. We did an episode of Coming Home Network Presents fairly recently with a, a couple of minor league baseball players. Uh, one of them was Wade Gaynor, and uh, Wade, riding on bus trips, would be reading theology. And <laughs> he remembers just like, the more he was reading, the deeper that he got, the more he's dissatisfied with traveling around and going to different churches and different places and, and really feeling convicted about what you're just talking about, uh, Kenny, with, I I need to be part of a place that has regular communion. And then, you know, once he started doing that, he was like, I need to be part of a place that has regular communion and takes it more seriously than this, right? And then finally, (laughs) as he jokes on the episode, he's like, I need to find a Protestant church that has the Eucharist, (laughs) right? And and he's like, then he knew he was, it was over with for him. But like, you know, that's, that's where you start to come to if you're, if you're really taking this question of supernatural food and drink seriously, the way that Paul is obviously taking it seriously. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let me push us down the road because when we start to talk about the Eucharist, of course, John six, all these things come into our minds, and we could go off and do a full systematic study. But, well, luckily we have episodes I, thirty-five <laughs> through forty-four of On the Journey for that, so we can oh, we can I, table I love, that and go to the next, as it were, pun intended, mm-hmm. and go to the next issue. I love having a an archivist and accountant on the on the staff. Thank you. Okay. Uh, but we're we're presenting the Eucharist here within the context of these steps. How are we changed mm-hmm. from one stage of glory to another, as Paul says in Second Corinthians three verse eighteen, by the Spirit of God? How are we changed? How does sanctification take place? And we're presenting this as one of the steps. Step five is that we need to thankfully receive the supernatural food and drink that God has given us for our journey through the, through the wilderness. Okay. So the sacrament of the Eucharist is presented to us typologically in the story of the manna and the water from the rock. But there is another sacrament presented to us in the story of Israel in the desert as well. And that is the sacrament of confession, which brings us to step six. We must avail ourselves as much as needed of the sacrament of confession by which we also receive grace. This is also a means of of grace and forgiveness and spiritual change in our lives in the pursuit of holiness. Okay, what were the Israelites instructed to do? They're still in the desert now. They're receiving their manna from heaven. It's falling down every day. They're eating it. They've got their water. What were they instructed to do when they became conscious that they had sinned against God? Well, I, I'm giving you the short version because there are many, many chapters that out, that outline this, mainly in the book of Leviticus, but they were instructed to bring a sin offering to the priest, usually a, from the sheep or from the goats. They would offer this sacrifice. 
the blood would be spilled upon the altar. And we read in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 20, and the priest shall make atonement for them, the ones who had sinned. In other words, by, by offering this sacrifice and sprinkling the blood on the altar, the priest shall make atonement for them and they shall be forgiven. And the point is this, the Israelites, again, typology that has its new covenant fulfillment. God gave the children of Israel in the wilderness. He provided for them a way when they had sinned, when they had broken fellowship with God, a way for them to make things right so that they could, as it were, take up their mat and walk again. They could start over. This was an expression of God's mercy to them, providing them with a way to fix things and receive forgiveness, atonement for sins and forgiveness. And now when you think about it, okay, think, think about it, you guys, because you go to confession. When we go to confession, what we are doing is very much like what the Israelites did in the wilderness. We are bringing our sacrifice to the priest. In this case, we're bringing the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world by his death and resurrection. We are bringing our sacrifice to a priest. We're offering that sacrifice, which is for the atonement of our sins. And we're receiving forgiveness. We're confessing our sin and we're receiving the forgiveness that comes to us through Christ. And so think of it like this. Confession, then, as, as the Eucharist is the new covenant fulfillment of the type of the manna and the water, Confession is the new covenant fulfillment of the old covenant sacrificial system. The Israelites brought their sacrifice of a lamb type. We bring the lamb of God anti-type. The Israelites confess their sin to the old covenant Levitical priest type. We confess our sins in the confessional to a new covenant Christian priest anti-type. And viewing the essential relationship of the old and new covenants as that of type and anti-type, type and a shadow and fulfillment, if you will, then we should not be surprised when we read, for instance, in John chapter 20, verses 21 through 23, when we read these words, Jesus said to them again, and this is Jesus speaking to the 12 after his resurrection, peace be with you. As the father sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. As God provided the Israelites in the desert a way to make things right with God, the Lord has graciously done the same thing for us. He has provided for us a way to make things right when we have broken fellowship with God that we might begin again, begin again, start over again. And I just want to say, I want to hear your comments, but let me just say one more thing, that as you and I really attempt to break unhealthy or even sinful attachments that we've formed in our lives over time, we're going to fail. I mean, I don't know about you. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. Maybe you guys don't fail. I don't know. You'll have to, you'll have to confess here. Um, but normally... People are going to fail. You're going to fail. Well, in the sacrament of confession, we have a method for dealing with that failure, which is psychologically powerful, spiritually powerful, and very, very biblical. 
a way of dealing with that failure, getting back on our feet so that we can take up our mat like the paralytic after he was forgiven and healed, and we can move forward. And this is a tremendous grace that I didn't know about again when I was a Baptist. When I sinned back then, the best I could do, I just looked up to heaven kind of and said, oh God, I did it again. Or if I, maybe if I had a close friend, I would tell a close friend because there was something psychologically powerful in doing that. But as a Catholic now, I want to make every opportunity of utilizing the great sacrament of confession because this is another channel for receiving God's life and grace in, into us. Well, I think comment? we should do a whole a whole thing episode or you know maybe a couple episodes on confession for so many reasons because mm-hmm. yep. um what's fascinating yeah. about this well it might be tempting for someone who is a, a Christian of a, you know sort of like a a generally biblical perspective to think in the old ways people did this weird sacrificial liturgical system and that none of that matters now because Christ came and died for my sins. Well, really you can't understand any of that stuff. You can't understand any of it until you realize like, this is a language that God has taught his people to speak. Like this is a vocabulary for sin and redemption that he has been building and building and building for centuries so that when he goes to the same room full of people who are at the last supper, who he told this do and remembered to me, uh, you know, and gives them the both the order and the power to make that spiritual food present. Mm-hmm. And that goes to that same group of people and says, whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Remember, that was a Passover context. That was like a, that was a priestly setting, right? Yes. This is a priestly setting in which they are given this weird power. And it's not like a temporary, like, you get to forgive the next five people. You've got, like, enough, you got five <laughs> turns in you, like, you know, and then your power's spent, right? And then when he says that, you know, you can, you know, as the Father has sent me, so I send you, that means that they can turn around and say to somebody else, as Jesus sent me, so I send you. Like, it just all comes together, and you start to see this yes. whole picture. Yeah, that, you said, like, really that puts it all together. Yeah, like if you take the context of the room, the Passover, Jesus takes a towel, he washes their feet, and then he says, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. He's ordaining them. Now, that's another whole subject. We could do a series on the priesthood, but he's ordaining them, and then he says, then I breathe on, he breathes on them, and they receive. Kenny, you want to say something about the breath, or you you shared something with me yesterday that was really powerful. Hit me up, or hit us up. Yeah. I have I have three big ideas. I'll I'll do them really quickly, and I'll start with breathing. And um, you know, because we we um, former non Catholics made much of the fact that the word is God breathed, and that's why it alone, as we thought, had authority. Um, you know, this infallible authority. I mean, like if God breathes the scripture, as it in as Paul says in his letter to Timothy, it's God breathed and therefore prof- profitable. And you mm-hmm. find in scripture that when, when God breathes, he's investing with authority. So for instance, going all the way back to Genesis, where it says that God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into him and he becomes a living soul. What, what does God do with that man? Well, he makes him his image. That is, he makes him his presence in the world, his, the visible representation of his very presence in the world, his regent, his delegate, 
um, his right-hand man by breathing into him. And here we have Jesus now again. If God breathing is what invests with authority, uh, a la, you know, uh, Paul's letter to Timothy and, and the scripture, well, here the living word, Jesus, the Lagos, the agent of creation, breathes <laughs> upon these yes. uh, men and then he commissions them to go into the world and says that they can forgive sins as his representative. Um, so to me, in terms of biblical theology, that doesn't shock me at all. It just makes sense. It seems like continuity to me that this is what God is doing. And I'll just say, say two more things about this. I think probably Matt and I had, maybe we had more um, interaction with this whole idea of rededicating our lives to Jesus. I don't know if you did that a lot as a Baptist uh, preacher, Ken. Did you did you do rededications, or was that something that you would have talked well, about? You know, publicly. People, people could do that. They could come forward to rededicate okay. themselves, but it wasn't something that we. Yeah. yeah. So I I think of that practice: come and rededicate your life to the Lord as a latent memory. That that's just housed in the heart of a person who's filled with the Holy Spirit, but doesn't have a robust Catholic theology. Something in them is driving them to do this thing with the church where they, they recommit mm -hmm. themselves to mm -hmm. Jesus. And as Catholics, that's what the sacrament of reconciliation is. It is a rededication of your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And, and if I, if I, and the third thought then is, well, how so? Well, two words, accomplished and applied, accomplished and applied. Mm -hmm. What Jesus has done on Calvary, what he has done on the cross accomplishes our salvation, brings about the reality of our reconciliation with God for real. That accomplishes it. But how is it applied? How is it applied to our lives? Well, it's applied sacramentally through confessing our sins uh, to one another, as the scripture says in, in the New Testament, and receiving absolution, receiving the <coughs> forgiveness that comes mm -hmm. through the ones upon whom God has breathed. These are apostles and their delegates, their successors. And so, again, back to that word continuity. All of this makes sense. It's, it's how God has been doing it all along, and now it's fully filled up in Jesus and through his church. Can I jump on that? Because you just put together two thoughts in my head that have been kind of rolling around separately, but this, you've gotten me excited. So uh, recently, one of our uh, viewers, <laughs> Mike, Mike, if you're watching, thank you for this, pointed something interesting th to me a bit, uh, about the verse that you started off that, that, uh, that Pentecostal, you know, fireball with, <laughs> where it, in, uh, in second Timothy, Three. I've only got the NIV in front of me because I grabbed it because of the Desert of Sin map. But um, in the version I memorize, it says, All Scripture is God-breathed right. and is useful for mm -hmm. teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Uh, the second half of this verse, when you talked about breathing, investing somebody with authority, mm -hmm. why? Do you remember? Why is it that Scripture is God-breathed and useful? So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's like giving you some sort of authority and power to participate in, well, as it says directly in the scriptures, in every good work. It's like back to step two of what you were saying. It's 
I mean, it, you are given this ability, this authority to do that work, right? Because of the yeah. breath, the investment of the authority. Um, he told me this, by the way, in the context that the one sola scriptura verse abolishes sola fide, but it still kind of connects those two thoughts in an amazing way. Like the word of God breathes gives us that power. Right. Yeah, and you've provided you provided a great seg segue into step seven there, Matt, by talking about the God breathed scriptures, the Word of God, because okay, step five today we've looked at is the is the Eucharist. God has given us supernatural food and drink that we should treasure and we should avail ourselves of. Secondly, confession. God has given us a way a way of uh, of dealing with sin so that we can stand back up on our feet and begin again. And there's nothing like the feeling of being, being able to begin again. Well, step seven is this then. We need to think of God's commandments, the word of God, as outlining our path to freedom. And I'm adding one more thought here. I think we need to understand that obedience to God in any area of life strengthens us to fight temptation in every area of life. It strengthens us. So step seven is this, it's, it's the word of God, the commandments of God and outlining for us the path to freedom. The path of obedience is the path of freedom because after crossing the desert for some time, grumbling so that God has to send them the manna, grumbling some more so that God has to send them water, that's Exodus 16 and Exodus 17, the Israelites come to Mount Sinai where God gives them something else. He gives them his law, the Ten Commandments, and then later some more laws. The Ten Commandments inscribed on tablets of stone. There's the type again, okay? The law inscribed on tablets of stone because <clears throat> we learn later when Jeremiah, Ezekiel begin to talk about the new covenant that's going to come, they, they explicitly say it's not going to be like the covenant that God made with his people before which they broke in the new covenant, he's going to inscribe his laws on our hearts. Okay. Now, no doubt when the Israelites received their laws from God, many of them probably felt that God's laws were a burden, something that enslaves them. But I, I want to point out, first of all, this wasn't God's perspective, obviously, because God told them again and again that loving him, trusting him, keeping his commandments would be for them the very path to health and life and happiness. And I'm reading from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 and 16, where we read Moses speaking to the children of Israel in the plains of Moab as they were preparing to cross the Jordan River finally at the end of 40 years in the wilderness. Quoting, See, I have set before you this day life and good, death and evil, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, by loving the Lord your God and walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you are entering to take possession of it. Now, it's still the case that unbelievers especially, they think of Christianity, especially Catholic Christianity, as some form of slavery. Um, but I'd have to say there are some Christians who view the commandments of God as a form of slavery as well. And maybe you can, maybe you too can reflect on that. But, but, but certainly to the non-believing world, freedom for them tends to mean freedom from rules. 
freedom from commandments, freedom from constraints, freedom to do what one likes. And of course, we see things quite differently. Um, because if God, and this is back to Adam and breathing into Adam, Kenny, your, your comment a moment ago, but if God created us in his image and likeness, created us to be his image and likeness, it follows that we will be most free, most happy, most healthy when we are living as his image and likeness. That is living a, a, according to his ways, living according to God's commandments. And what we learn as Christians, especially as Catholics, well, no, what we learn as Christians is that it is sin that shackles us and enslaves us. Um, I think Jesus said in John chapter 8, he who sins is a slave of sin. There is nothing more freeing than obedience. And a, mm -hmm. a, like a cheap, a cheap analogy that I use, like a cheap suit maybe is this. I mean, no one ever looks at a train running along its track and thinks to themselves, oh, how confining. This poor train just running along on its tracks. And, you know, it isn't free just to jump the tracks and head off through the swamp or through the mud or over the mountains, through the woods to grandmother's house, whatever. You know, here it is stuck on these tracks when, when we, of course, know that it's precisely the track that is allowing the train to run full speed ahead with freedom. And it, it's the same way in our lives. It's the same way in our lives. You guys go ahead and jump in at this point. I've, I'd love to jump in right here because I can tell you it sounds weird. Uh, you know, a lot of people think that we became Catholic and suddenly like, you know, we you know, got into these little tiny boxes where we could only like move like a couple of inches in each direction. But I feel freer <laughs> yeah. than I've ever felt in my entire life. Uh, literally, like, it's a very short list of stuff that you got to do. Like, do good, avoid evil, go to mass, go to confession, <laughs> be baptized. Yeah. It's a very short list. You know what? I mean, that doesn't feel like slavery. I wrote down a few things that, that do feel like slavery to me. Um, I don't know if this will help people. Um, these things do feel like slavery to me. Uh, the insurance system, credit card debt, a mortgage, um, the felt need to check my phone every couple minutes. I would say uh, not being able to stop from going to the next episode in a Netflix series when the episode I'm watching ends, uh, comparing myself to other people. All those things feel like slavery to me. They all feel like slavery yeah. to me. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, are. everybody just is like, this is just life. This is well, the, the my mm -hmm. my life in the church and the in the world of the sacraments is the one thing that doesn't feel like slavery. Right. Good point. Yeah, Good point. It, it's it's true. I was telling Ken yesterday the the story of my my friend John. He and I served in the Navy together for six years, and he came back into the the Catholic Church a couple of years ago. I was his sponsor. We 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 spent six years of our life together in you know traveling all over the world serving in the navy together and all we were going to the same churches and doing all the same things and when he when he became catholic he said kenny when we weren't catholics we were re, we were we were told read your bible go to church tithe share your faith pray you know oh. all of these things join a ministry and we were told those those were the things that were going to help us grow in our our Christian life. Yeah, yeah. I said, John, that's right. You said, well, now that we're Catholic, what's what's the thing? You know, like, what's the speech you get? I said, yeah, yeah. I get I get the impulse to look for that, and here it is: live your life as a Catholic 
in the guardrails of the sacraments. The sacraments are, are what keep you on track as a Catholic. And you know what happens a lot of times in, in apologetics and attacks on Catholic faith is you'll hear someone say, well, Catholics add the sacraments to faith. You know, it's faith plus the mm-hmm. sacraments. And that's how they believe they get saved. But we uh, believe we just get saved by faith. And I would say that that's a misrepresentation of of both positions because because everybody's giving each other lists of things to do. But what I would say is, no, it isn't faith plus sacraments. It is a sacramental life as the way in which faith is carried out or lived or embraced. In other words, as a Catholic, faith is is something that you do. It isn't a passive, well, I just b- believe in my heart and in my head. Rather, faith is is an obedient life that's oriented toward God in love, and that's visible sacramentally. That is, in this embrace of heaven and earth realities that converge together in things like the celebration of the Eucharist, um, baptism, uh, going to confession. That is what faith looks like when you're doing it. One thing to add to that, Kenny, is that you can only really make that argument um, if you talk about you know, the sacraments are something that are added to faith. As long as you keep sacraments like way out there, you never look at what a sacrament is or how they work. Because let me just right. tell you from personal experience, um, any lingering objection I might have had to the man-made ritual of going to the sacrament of confession all went away the first time I heard that prayer of absolution. I was like, whoa, <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> you know, yeah. I was like, I, I went out feeling like like Superman. Like, I was like, I feel like like grace just got dumped on me, like in a, you know, a massive, like a container truck of grace just like dumped on me. <laughs> like, I felt like something actually happened, right? It was mm-hmm. not like, is if you can keep yeah. the sacraments out there you felt like- and not think about what they actually are and what they actually do, then you can keep that argument going. But if you ever actually look mm-hmm. into them one by one, when you you're say, surprised. When you say that you felt like Superman, I'm back to the Israelites coming out of the Red Sea and singing, the horse and its rider he has, <laughs> he has thrown into the sea. But then within I, a couple thought, of pages, okay, I, but then I, within I, a couple of pages, say, they're I, like, they're, they're, I'm starving to death. I want to go back to Egypt. <laughs> I thought you were so going to say, I, too. I felt like Superman, hey. but I look like Lex Luthor. So... Whatever. Well, I've I've never thought of you as looking like Lex Luthor. Add another 20 or 30 years and maybe. Okay, but listen, the way that you stated this, Kenny and and Matt, in your follow-up, faith plus the sacraments supports really steps five and six that we covered in this this lesson here, you know, the, the Eucharist and confession. So let me emphasize step seven. It would be more like faith and obedience to the commandments of God. Not just faith in the sacraments, faith and the moral right. obedience to the moral commandments of God, because right. it's the moral commandments of God. Don't be, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't honor your father and your mother. It, it's the moral commandments of God that can feel, and certainly feel to many, uh, to be constraints. I like your image, Matt, of a little box where you can only move one or two inches each, each direction, um, but. As Christians, we understand this is not God's perspective. It's not God's perspective of how we should think of the commandments. And it's never been, this is important, it has never been the perspective of those who love God. 
And I want to remind you, I want to remind all of you, Catholics and Protestants, of a few passages from the Bible that we all love. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. His delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Or Psalm 19, which contains these words, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. And one more passage, if anybody wants to take it on. Pick up your Bible, open it to Psalm 119 sometime and read it. This is the longest of all the Psalms, 176 verses. And the entire thing is pretty much devoted to expressing delight and love toward the commandments of God, the word of God. A couple of samples. Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to thy word. Verse Verse 24 of this Psalm. Thy testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 97, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. And since many of us are conditioned, you guys, to think of God's commandments as something negative, as something constraining on our liberties, something confining, I think it would be good for us to remember, and this is part of this step seven, to keep clear in our mind that the very essence of the new covenant in Christ is described in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, and in many other places too, is described as God writing his law on our hearts, inscribing his law mm-hmm. on our hearts, and giving us the Holy Spirit in order that we would have the ability to keep God's commandments. I think again of Romans 6, we've died with Christ. We have been raised to newness of life so that we do not have to serve sin any longer. And then Romans chapter 8, verse 4, where Paul says that Christ died and rose again, and now I'm quoting, in order that the just requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, what, by legal imputation? That's not what he says. He says, the just requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to Mm -hmm. the Spirit. He's basically saying the same thing he says in Romans chapter 6. God has given us the Spirit so that we can begin to love him and keep his commandments. Mm-hmm. I've yeah, said enough so about good, that. Ken. I'm just saying that's, that's number seven. <laughs> well, here, here's I know we're coming in for a landing, so here's my final contribution to this discussion with everything you just shared, Ken. And I can do this sort of in the on-the-journey motif here that we have, that we're talking about what we were like and how we thought before we were Catholics and how we think now that we're Catholics. And you've heard me sometimes go back and talk to Pastor Kenny. Uh, and I can do that right yeah. here. Catholic Kenny can go back and talk to Pastor Kenny. And he can say, uh, Pastor Kenny, are you a Marcionite? And, and Pastor Kenny would say, no. And what I would mean by that is that the Old, Old Testament is still relevant, still the Word of God, still applies. 
And I could say, well, well, Pastor Kenny, do you believe that the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or in the seat of mockers, do you believe that that, that man is blessed because Psalm 1 says so? I would say, well, yeah, well, what's your point? And I, so Catholic Kenny would say, well, that's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. I, I, I'm saying it's still true. Like Psalm 1 is still true. Psalm 119 is still true that the yes. law of the Lord does all these things and that God still calls me to obey him. And like that hasn't changed because we're all Christians now. And faith is obedience to God in love. That's all we're saying. We're saying it's still true mm -hmm. and it's fulfilled and has its fullest fulfillment in Jesus. That's it. Good stuff. Amen. And let me <laughs> land the plane by simply saying, unless I forget, we've run through seven steps in the process of sanctification. A, we need to be crying out to God. It begins with prayer. Internal change begins with prayer. Two, we need to trust God and do the things God gives us to do. Three, we need to remember that in our baptism, God set us free. Something happened deep within us. Mm -hmm. We've been set free. Number four, we need to follow the Spirit of God into the wilderness of this world, realizing that this is for our good. God wants to test us and try us. He wants us to be changed in the process. Five, we need to take advantage of the supernatural food and drink that God has given us to nourish us through the wilderness. Six, take advantage of confession, another great grace that he's given us to help us along the way to restore our relationship with God, to get up and walk again. And seven, we need to love the commandments of God and we need to hear them. And I love what you just said, Kenny, that Psalm 1 is simply, it's still true. That's all we're saying. It's still true that the man who delights in the law of God and 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 cherishes, cherishes it and tries to live in accord, accordance with it will be like a tree planted by streams of water whose leaves do not fail and everything he does prospers. Amen. Good stuff. Gentlemen. Bring us home, Matt. Bring us home, Matt. I will bring us all home. It's on the journey. <laughs> on the journey to a specific place. No, I meant... I don't know if we could... I meant do a saxophone solo. I meant do a saxophone solo. I was trying to figure out what was trademarked and what was not. Uh, so Take it home, I can man. do that. My Duke Take Silver home, buddy. moment. Yeah, so... Uh, yeah, we thank you for joining us on this episode of On the Journey... Uh, and if you uh, want to go back and watch previous episodes, it's very easy to do. Just go to chnetwork.org. Uh, while you're there, um, there are de definitely a ton of ways that you can get involved, including our online community. You can go there directly by just going to community.chnetwork.org. Plug into a whole group of people having great conversations about what it means to try and figure out some of the stuff that we've just been talking about. And then, of course, if you want to be a supporter, uh, we would most be most grateful for your support. You can especially... Uh, if you want to, I mean, the most helpful thing you could do is become a monthly supporter through our Compass program. If you go to chnetwork.org slash compass and enter the code OTJ3141, we'll send you a copy of Marcus Grody's book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? And uh, as you can tell, it's very much related to the series that we've been doing uh, here on, on the journey most recently. Again, that's chnetwork.org slash compass. Enter the code OTJ3141. Ken, Kenny, thank you again. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. See ya.